Sikhism, the youngest of the world's major religions and the fifth largest, was founded in the Indian subcontinent a little over 500 years ago. While most Sikhs today live in India, there are large Sikh communities in the UK, US, Canada, East Africa, and several other countries. The beliefs of the Sikhs and their colorful 500-year history are not very well understood, particularly in the West. We are here to change that. I'm Erica Wong, co-producer and audio engineer. In the story of the Sikhs, Sarbpreet Singh will take you on an engaging journey through the history of a rebellion which rocked the foundations of the established social order of the time and ended with the creation of a new faith. time when I conquered the land of Kabul till now, I have always been bent on subduing Hindustan. Sometimes, however, from the misconduct of my emirs and their dislike of the plan, sometimes from the cabals and opposition of my brothers, I was prevented. At length, these obstacles were removed. There was no one left, high or low, gentle or simple, who dared to urge a word against this enterprise. In 1519, I gathered an army, and taking the fort of Bajor by storm in about an hour, put all the garrison to the sword. From that time till 1526, I specially devoted myself to the affairs of Hindustan, and in the space of these seven or eight years, I entered it five times at the head of an army. The fifth time, God most high of his mercy and grace, cast down and defeated so powerful an enemy as Sultan Ibrahim, and made me master and conqueror of the mighty empire of Hindustan. These words are from the tuzuk e babri the memoirs of Babur, the dispossessed monarch of the tiny kingdom of Fergana, which falls in modern-day Uzbekistan. Fueled by ambition, and the blood of the mighty Mongol conquerors Genghis Khan and Timur that flowed through his veins, Babur had just pulled off an inconceivable victory. His tiny but well-disciplined army had defeated the mighty forces of Sultan Ibrahim Lodi, the Afghan emperor of Delhi in the first battle of Panipat, the foundation stone of the Mughal empire which was to dominate the Indian subcontinent for two centuries had just been laid. However, Babur was not being completely accurate when he claimed that there was no one left high or low, gentle or simple, who dared to urge a word against his enterprise. During one of his incursions into India in the year 1521, Babur's army laid waste to Sayyidpur, a small dusty town that lies in modern-day Pakistan and is now known as Aminabad. The carnage was terrible, even by the brutal standards of medieval warfare, and the town had been turned into a charnel house. The narrow streets, awash in blood, resounded with the piteous wailing of disconsolate women lamenting the death of their menfolk and the indignities that each one of them had been subjected to. The resistance came from an unexpected source. Raje Sihu Mukaddam Kutte Jai Jagayan Bethe Sutte Chakar Nenda Payan Ghao Rat Pit Kutte Ho Chat Jao 
Kings are hungry lions, their servants rabid dogs. Foes of soothing, restful sleep, the mindless, servile cogs. The lackeys of the evil king, waving talon and claw, they prey upon common gentle folk, their tender flesh they gnaw. These bold words came from the mouth of a holy man in his early fifties, who was in Sayyidpur, visiting with a humble carpenter named Lalo, one of his followers. The holy man, who had been traveling the world, preaching his gospel of equality, kindness, and gentleness, was shocked by the atrocities that he saw in Sayyidpur. He upbraided Babur fearlessly in no uncertain terms, calling him a tyrant. Indifferent to the consequences, as Babur's men arrested and imprisoned him for his insolence. Who was this man? So courageous and unflinching, when faced with the kind of tyranny his homeland had never seen before. Around 40 miles to the southwest of the city of Lahore, which lies in Pakistan today, is the village of Nankana Sahib, which in medieval times was known as Rai Poe Ki Talwandi. A man named Mehta Kalu, who lived in the village, was employed by the feudal lord of the area Rai Bular as his clerk and accountant. On April 15, 1469, there was great rejoicing in Metha Kalu's home. His wife Tripta delivered a healthy baby boy who was to be named Nanak. The lad was born in a time of great political and social ferment. 150 years before his birth, his homeland, the Punjab, had been ravaged by Timur. Five decades of turmoil followed as various warlords, emboldened by the weakness of the Sayyids who ruled Delhi, flexed their muscles and preyed upon the common people of the Punjab. A semblance of order was restored in 1451 when the Lodhi dynasty was established in Delhi. Sikandar Lodi, who ascended to the throne in Delhi and became the overlord of the Punjab, was not a particularly enlightened ruler. He showed great harshness to non-Muslims in particular, forcing them to pay the jizya tax in order to guarantee their safety and property. The ruling class was mostly Afghan and their faith was Sunni Islam, the Qazis or magistrates of the Islamic Sharia courts, the Muftis or jurists, and the ulema or scholars diligently emulated the bigotry of the monarch in their implementation of Sharia law. The dominant faith of the masses was Hinduism, which at the time of Nanak's birth had relapsed into orthodoxy, ritualism, and superstition. Hindu society was divided into a hierarchy of four castes. The Brahmins, who were the priests and scholars. The Kshatriyas, who were rulers, administrators and warriors. The Vaishyas, who were artisans, merchants, tradesmen and farmers. And the Shudras, who formed the laboring class. Caste was strictly determined by birth, with no mobility between castes and restricted social intercourse. Occupation was determined by caste, with no regard for ability, interest, or aptitude. 
intermarriage across castes was strictly forbidden. The Shudras in particular were subject to gut-wrenching discrimination and harassment. Their only function, according to Manu, the ancient Hindu sage credited with authoring the Manusmriti, which documents societal duties, rights, conduct and virtues, was to serve the three higher castes. Ail Basham, in his work, The Wonder That Was India, writes, The Shudra, in fact, was a second-class citizen, quite outside the pale of Hindu society, and was virtually indistinguishable from the great body of people later known as untouchables. According to Brahminical texts, the chief duty of the Shudra was to wait on the other three classes. He was to eat the remnants of his master's food, wear his cast-off clothing, and use his old furniture. Even when he had the opportunity of becoming wealthy, he might not do so, for a Shudra who makes money is distressing to the Brahmins. He had few rights, and little value was set on his life and law. A Brahmin killing a Shudra performed the same penance as for killing a cat or a dog. The Shudra was not allowed to hear or repeat the Vedas, which were holy Hindu texts. Even lower than the Shudras ranked the so-called untouchables. Examples of these were the Chandals, who were tasked with cremating corpses and executing criminals. They were not allowed to live in a town or village and had to dwell in special quarters outside their boundaries. According to the law books, they were to be dressed in the clothes of those they cremated, eat in broken vessels, and wear only iron ornaments. No man of a higher caste could ever have any social intercourse with them on pain of losing their religious purity, and often they were forced to strike wooden clappers upon entering a town or village to warn the higher castes of their polluting approach. The institutionalized discrimination extended to all women as well. A woman was always considered to be a minor under the law, as a girl under the tutelage of her father, as an adult of her husband, and as a widow of her sons. Basham writes that the early law books assessed a woman's wergeld, or worth, as equivalent to that of a shudra, whatever her caste. Of course the masses had never known any other social order, and its insidiousness was not something that many dwelt upon, much less young children. But Nanak was a precocious and insightful child. When the lad turned seven, Methakalu decided that it was time for his education to begin. Armed with an offering consisting of a coin, betel nut, and rice, he took his son to the local village school run by a high-caste Brahmin teacher, where he was to be taught arithmetic and bookkeeping, as well as reading and writing in the Devanagari script. The lad entered the small hut that served as a schoolroom, armed with a wooden tablet, painted black, and a supply of liquid chalk, and took his place among a dozen boys who were copying the letters of the alphabet onto their tablets, repeating their names aloud with much noise and zest. In a single day, young Nanak had mastered the alphabet, and it is said that he astounded the Brahmin by creating an acrostic that in elegant poetry 
gave voice to his divine aspirations. Graduation came early. One day the teacher noticed that the lad sat silently, apparently unwilling to do any schoolwork. When he sought to chastise his pupil for his idleness, the young Nana coolly asked him if he was sufficiently learned to teach him. The Brahmin sputtered indignantly, enumerating the Vedas and the Shastras, ancient Hindu texts that he had mastered, upon which the lad firmly but politely declared that he preferred the study of divine knowledge and went on to utter an elegant and deeply philosophical hymn, extolling the glory of God and emphasizing the futility of idle words and the ephemeral nature of worldly glory. The Brahmin, in a flash, understood that he was dealing with no ordinary child and declared that the lad had nothing further to learn from him. Nanak sought the company of holy men, who frequented the forests around his home, engaged in meditation and prayer. Many of them had traveled far and wide and were well versed in the religious literature of their age, and the lad continued to further his education by constantly engaging in dialogue with them. Nanak's ninth birthday was the cause of great joy in Metakalu's household. Beautiful new garments were obtained for Nanak and his older sister Nanaki, and a great feast was prepared. Friends and relatives gathered in Metakalu's house to celebrate Nanak's coming of age. Through a formal initiation ceremony presided over by the family Brahmin, Pandit Hardeyal. The Upanyana was an important rite of passage for every high caste Hindu boy, which marked his coming of age and signaled the start of his formal education under the guidance of a master. Upper caste Hindus were considered to be Dvij, or twice born, the Upanyana being considered the second birth. The ceremony, of course, was not available to Shudras, untouchables, or women in Nanak's times. The boy was given a ritual bath, dressed in his new clothes, and was brought into the presence of Pandit Hardeyal, who, beaming with joy and anticipating the rich offerings from Metakalu, was readying a three-stranded string. The Yajnopavita, or the Janu, to be placed on Nanak's torso to the accompaniment of the sacred prayer, the Gaitri Mantra. Everyone in the assembly was smiling, except the lad, who was in deep thought, his brow furrowed. As Pandit Hardeyal started to slip the sacred thread around his neck, the boy looked unflinchingly at the priest and grasped the thread, stopping him. The entire assembly gasped at his impudence. The priest, who perhaps thought that the lad had been overwhelmed by the solemnity of the occasion, very kindly proceeded to explain the significance of the sacred thread. It is a mark of your high birth and station, he said. Donning it will bring you greatness in this world and in the next, and without it, you will be no better than a lowly Shudra. And then the nine-year-old boy spoke. Daya kapa santok sut jat gandhi satvat eh janeo ji ka haita pande kat naye tutte namal lagge naye jale na jaye tan sumanas nanaka jogal chale paaye let mercy be thy cotton, contentment be thy thread. Knot it with your continence. With every twist let truth be said. A sacred thread on my soul, O Brahman, do bequeath. That cannot ever be broken, 
that can't be touched by fire, that will not ever get dirty or ever will expire. O Nanak, to such a blessed thread, let every man aspire. Stunned silence. It was not at all evident at that moment. But Nanak, at the age of nine, had laid down a fundamental principle of the egalitarian faith that he was to go on to found. He wanted no part of a social system that was built on a foundation of inequality. His rejection of the sacred thread was the first of many actions that he took to shake the age-old order based on caste distinctions. Nanak was by no means the first thinker who had chafed at the inequalities that were tolerated, even gleefully embraced by the society they lived in. However, as we shall learn, he was one of the rare visionaries who created social norms and institutions that were intended to drive a stake into the heart of caste-based discrimination. Of course, Metta Kalu was completely unimpressed by his son's rejection of the sacred thread, which only served to deepen his exasperation and worry. Nanak's lack of interest in either education or labor, and the time he spent in the forests in the company of ascetics and mendicants, had already been a matter of grave concern to Metta Kalu and his wife who worried constantly about their son's future. Metakalu was advised by his friends to seek a wife for his son. Child marriages were common, and he felt that having a wife and eventually a family to care for might have a positive and settling influence on his wayward son. An alliance was sought with Sulakhani, the daughter of Mula a fellow Kshatriya who lived in the town of Batala. Nanak was betrothed at nine and married at the ripe old age of twelve. The city of Sultanpur at the time was the capital of the Jalandhar Dwab, a fertile area between the Bias and the Satluj, two of the great rivers that run through the Punjab. A revenue collector from Sultanpur named Jairam was deputed to Talwandi, where he happened upon Nanaki. The young man was smitten and sought her hand through the chief Rai Bular. Nanaki and Jairam were married, and she went to live at Sultanpur. In the meantime, despite being married, Nanak showed absolutely no interest in any useful work. Metha Kalu asked him to tend cattle or farm the land, but Nanak was stubbornly indolent often remaining in one position for days and avoiding all physical exertion. His parents thought he had taken leave of his senses, and even summoned a doctor fearing that their son was ill. But the young man would respond to admonitions and examinations alike in deeply philosophical verse that spoke to matters of the spirit and the soul. In the summer of 2004, a few yards from the glittering waters of the Mediterranean stood a gigantic steel-framed tent. 8,000 men, women, and children from all over the world had gathered in Barcelona for the Parliament of the World's Religions, the world's largest interfaith event that occurs every four to five years. Some of the most joyous and meaningful memories the attendees took back with them 
were of the meals that they were offered in the tent, three times a day, prepared and served by Sikh volunteers from the UK. For many, it was their first experience of the Guruka Langar, or the communal Sikh kitchen, established by none other than the young man whose obdurate opposition to all occupations worldly had driven his parents to distraction 500 years earlier. The story goes that one day, Nanak, as usual, was sitting idle at home when Mehta Kalu stormed in and started to berate his son. Nanak begged forgiveness and promised his father that from that moment on he would be the most obedient of sons. Mehta Kalu bade him to go to a nearby town to buy salt, turmeric, and other items, which were then to be sold at a profit to launch Nanak's career as a trader. Mehta Kalu handed 20 rupees to a servant that he commanded to accompany Nanak on his mission and sternly remonstrated with him to ensure that he struck a good bargain. Determined to carry out his father's wishes, Nanak with his companion set out for the town. Mehta Kalu, familiar with his son's ways, accompanied them part of the way reiterating the high expectations he had of his son ever since his birth and how important it was to him that he be successful, become a credit to the family, and increase its renown. Finally, he let them proceed on their own and stood rooted to the spot, watching his son's figure receding into the distance with fondness. After they had walked for a bit, they came upon a forest which was home to a gaggle of holy men of every imaginable stripe. Nanak paused, taking in the wondrous scene, his eyes shining. Some of the holy men were seated silently and calmly, eyes shut in deep meditation. Some were performing austerities, twisting their bodies in complicated postures, or standing upright with their arms stretched to the heavens. Others sat warming their hands around smoking mounds of twigs and leaves, and some sat in the lotus position. A solitary man sat naked in a small pool of water. All of them had sacrificed worldly comforts in their quest for the glories of the afterlife. Some had taken a vow of silence. Their leader was seated on a deerskin, spread out under a tree, lost in his reflections on the divine, as one of his followers carefully perused ancient texts by his side. Nanak whispered to his companion excitedly, What better bargain could there possibly be? Let us make an offering of the money to these fine holy men. They will eat and buy clothes, and they will all be pleased. His companion, in great alarm, voiced his disagreement. Your father, Metha Kalu, gave you strict instructions to buy goods for trading with the money, and you know his temper. But I am your servant, and I shall do as you say. With this, he handed the money to Nanak, who approached the leader of the holy men, saluted him politely, and squatted on the ground before him. He looked at the naked holy man with his body coated with ash in wonderment and asked, You wear no clothes on your body at all. The heat, the rain, the cold, it must cause you a lot of discomfort. Upon which the holy man, eyes flashing with anger, retorted, that it was not Nanak's place to ask. Fearing that the holy man might curse his master, Nanak's companion pleaded with him to get up and leave so that they could complete the task that Mehta Kalu had assigned to them. But Nanak dug in his heels and declared, 
a better bargain is not to be had anywhere else. Unafraid of the holy man, he addressed him again. If you don't wear clothes, do you not eat as well? he asked curiously. The sage replied that he and his band ate whatever God sent them. They had renounced the world and had embraced the forest after giving up the comfort of their homes. Nanak smilingly turned to his companion and declared, See, I told you, a better bargain is not to be found. And to the mutterings of dire consequences by his companion, placed the twenty rupees before the sage. The holy man refused the money, but permitted Nanak to go to a nearby village to buy food for his fellow mendicants, which they ate with great relish as Nanak watched with a smile, ignoring his companion's apprehension at what lay ahead. The holy man blessed Nanak, declaring that they had been hungry for seven whole days and dismissed him. Nanak humbly bowed before the holy men and took his leave. As they walked back, Nanak's sense of euphoria began to fade, and he turned to his companion. What have we done? As they approached the village of Talbandi, Nanak, fearful of his father's wrath, did not enter the village and disconsolately sat down under a tree at the outskirts. Methakalu saw that Nanak's companion had returned without his son, and it didn't take long for him to drag the truth out of the terrified servant. Roaring with anger, Methakalu stormed out of his house to look for his wayward son. His wife, Tripta, fearful, sent Nanak's sister Nanaki in the hope that she might restrain her father. Methakalu found Nanak cowering at the outskirts of the village and asked him to explain his actions, after which he slapped him hard on both cheeks. Just then Nanaki arrived and fell at her father's feet, begging forgiveness for her brother, pointing to his cheeks wet with tears that had purple welts on them. And thus, so it seemed, ended Nanak's great bargain. But the story didn't end there. From the ashes of Nanak's failure as a merchant rose a great institution, one that was to reflect the ethos of the faith that the young man would go on to found an institution that was to become the embodiment of the fundamental principles that Nanak and his followers to live by. For this was the genesis of the Langar, the Sikh community kitchen. For many in the West in particular, their most memorable experience of Sikhism and Sikhs is a visit to the Langar. It is always a convivial experience, delicious food served with a smile, to anyone who visits a Gurdwara or Sikh place of worship or attends a Sikh religious service. But it is so much more than a communal meal. It is the legacy of Nanak's great bargain and it is a living testament to Nanak's rejection of the terrible injustice of the caste system and his embrace of social justice. In the affluent West, a free meal at a community kitchen may seem to be interesting but hardly revolutionary, but it is important to view the Langar in the Indian context where most Sikhs live and most Gurdwaras are located. It is also important to understand that the Langar is funded entirely through voluntary contributions. Despite all of its advances in the past few decades and a burgeoning middle class, India remains a poverty-ridden country with mind-boggling social inequality where hunger is an issue even today. Wherever there is a Sikh Gurdwara, the hungry are welcome to eat in the Langar three times a day, 365 days a year, with no questions asked. It is a powerful and lasting commitment to social justice, which was a fundamental part of Nanak's creed.
Nanak's great bargain carried a powerful social message which was not apparent to Metha Kalu when he raised his hand to strike his son in frustration where he saw profligacy his son saw that there was no nobler or more meaningful use of one's resources than feeding the hungry the second aspect of the institution that came out of the great bargain was no less significant even as a child Nanak had rejected the sacred thread and the perpetuation of caste discrimination that it signified. Years after his rejection of the sacred thread and his great bargain, he instituted the langar, and in an act of sheer genius, turned it into a practical tool for dismantling the evil of caste-based oppression. Commensality refers to the beliefs practices, rules, and regulations that determine intercaste relationships regarding eating and drinking. Sociologist Adrian Meyer, in his work, Caste and Kinship in Central India, writes about caste status through commensality. The commensal hierarchy is based on the theory that each caste has a certain quality of ritual purity, which is lessened or polluted by certain commensal contacts with castes having an inferior quality. Commensal contacts include the cooking of food and its consumption. A superior caste will not eat from the cooking vessels nor the hands of a caste which it regards as inferior, nor will its members sit next to the inferior people in the same unbroken line or pungat while eating. Anyone who has ever eaten at the langar will immediately understand the enormity of what Nanak did 500 years ago. In the langar, everyone sits in an unbroken line known as the pungat and eats together. Today, it may not seem remarkable, but 500 years ago, when caste distinctions were diligently and brutally enforced, this was revolutionary. The lad who had very insightfully rejected the sacred thread of privilege was clearly attempting to subvert an insidious, inhuman social norm. Once Nanak and his faith became well known, supplicants and devotees from every faith and station would flock to his congregation or sangat but none would be admitted to the Sangat until they had partaken of the humble fare of the Pangat, where they would eat with peoples of all castes and creeds, very publicly rejecting the fastidious rules of commensality. The creation of the Langar and the Pangat by Nanak was a compassionate and breathtakingly bold act of defiance. And its seed was that chance encounter with the holy men that earned the young Nanak a thrashing. none of this was apparent to Metha Kalu at the time and he and his wife Tripta continued to worry about their son. Nanak's brother-in-law Jairam and the local chief Rai Bular had a different view of Nanak's unorthodox ways. Both of them suspected that Nanak was a saint and destined for greatness and they disapproved of the harsh manner in which Metha Kalu treated his son. When Nanak incensed his father yet again by befriending a wandering mendicant who appeared in Talvandi and giving him his gold ring and an expensive brass pitcher, Jairam easily convinced Metha Kalu to give Nanak permission to move to Sultanpur, where he promised to find him gainful employment. 
Nanak's young wife, in tears, was left behind in Talwandi, and after a farewell feast hosted by Rai Bular, he left with his brother-in-law for Sultanpur. True to his promise, Jairam introduced Nanak to Dalat Khan, the provincial governor, as an educated man, and helped him secure a job as storekeeper, which, to everyone's surprise, Nanak excelled at, earning praise for his diligence and honesty. For the first time in his life, Nanak seemed to be settled and started to follow a routine. He would work at the storehouse all day and take home the provisions that he was allowed. He would save a small portion for himself and distribute the rest to the poor. His nights would be spent singing hymns in praise of the divine in the company of holy men and friends who flocked to his home. While Nanak was at Talwandi, a Muslim minstrel named Mardana, ten years his senior, joined his household. He came from a family of musicians and played an instrument known as the Rabab. Mardana was married and had children of his own, but from that moment until the end of his days, he remained Nanak's constant companion. Other friends followed as well, and Nanak helped them all find employment with Dalat Khan. Nanak would revel in their company as they would join him to sing hymns every night. Before daybreak, Nanak would go to the nearby Vey River to perform his ablutions, handing his clothes to an attendant as he entered the river. By the time he was done, it would be dawn and he would leave for the storehouse to discharge his duties. One day at the break of dawn, Nanak's attendant arrived breathless at Nawab Dalit Khan's door and knocked urgently. Nanak went into the river, he gasped, but he never emerged. Dalit Khan, who had become fond of Nanak, swiftly mounted his horse and galloped to the river bank. There was no sign of Nanak. He summoned fishermen and commanded them to cast their nets into the river but they found nothing. The search was called off after hours. Sorrowfully, Dalit Khan mumbled, he was a good man who served me well, and returned home. According to traditional Sikh accounts, this is what happened. When Nanak entered the river, he was commanded to present himself in the court of the Almighty, the servants of the Almighty conveyed him to the court and announced, Nanak is here. A cup of nectar was placed before Nanak and he was commanded, O Nanak, this is a cup of the nectar of my name. Drink. Nanak saluted the Almighty and drained the cup, upon which the Almighty addressed him. I am with you, Nanak. I am pleased with you and shall be pleased with whoever utters your name. Venture forth and chant my name, and encourage others to reflect on me. Be of the world, live in the world, but remain pure. Reflection, charity, purity, service, meditation, let this be your creed. I have blessed you with my name. Nanak responded with a hymn. The Mool Mantra. His powerful and succinct articulation of the attributes of the divine, which completely encapsulates the theology of the faith that he was about to found. Ik oankar satnam kartapurak nirpo Nirvair, Akalmurat, Ajuni, Saibang, Gurprasad, Jap, Adasach, Jugadasach, Habhi Sach, Nanak, 
Hosib he such. There is but one God. His name is true. He is the creator. He is fearless. He is the enemy of none. He is immortal. He is unborn. He is self-created and illuminated. He is great and bountiful. The true one was in the beginning. The true one is now. O Nanak, the true one shall be. Upon hearing this, the Almighty said, O Nanak, upon whom my merciful gaze of kindness rests, be thou merciful too. My name is God, the primal one, and you are the divine Guru. Three days after he had disappeared, Nanak, who everyone assumed had drowned, showed up. He quietly went home and gave all his possessions away to the poor. Dalat Khan, upon receiving the news of his seemingly miraculous return, hastened to Nanak's home, peppering him with questions, but received no response, much to his disappointment. Nanak's silence prompted suspicions of possession, and a Muslim cleric was summoned to exorcise him of evil spirits. Nanak treated these efforts with bemusement, donned the garb of a religious man, and started to seek the company of mendicants and sages again. After more days of silence, Nanak somewhat cryptically uttered the following words, There is no Hindu and no Muslim. Hinduism and Islam were the major faiths of the Indian subcontinent at the time, with the Muslims having been politically dominant for centuries. Dalat Khan's Qazi was much chagrined and reported the matter to the governor, who summoned Nanak to explain this blasphemy. Nanak responded by explaining the ideal conduct of a true Muslim, much to the astonishment of the cleric. It was past midday, and it was time for afternoon prayer. The entire company, including Nanak, went to the local mosque and prayed until the calm of the mosque was shattered by peals of laughter. Nanak was laughing. When asked to explain his misconduct, Nanak said he laughed because the Qazi's prayer was insincere and not acceptable to the divine. For, he said the Qazi, rather than focusing on God and prayer, had been worrying about a newborn filly that his mare had delivered a day earlier. The Nawab, too, had been going through the motions of prayer, while pondering the purchase of horses in far-away Kabul. Nanak made many more pronouncements about the nature of the divine and deeply spiritual matters. To Nawab Dalat Khan, Nanak's connection to God was no more in doubt, and he submitted to him, offering him his entire authority and estate, which Nanak, in no need of worldly possessions, politely declined. It was clear that Nanak's destiny lay elsewhere, and it was time for him to give up his occupation as the keeper of Dalat Khan's store and begin his divine mission. The powerful and the meek, the haughty and the holy, all of them gathered to bid Nanak farewell as he left Sultanpur on the exciting but uncertain journey ahead. For there were many paths to be walked, many lands to be seen, and many injustices to be confronted, before the young man, who left the town with his minstrel in tow, would turn into the sage, who one day would have the temerity to confront the merciless conqueror of his land. 
The Story of the Sikhs is written and narrated by Sarbpreet Singh, author of the poem Kultar's Mime, which was adapted for the stage and tells the story of the massacre of the Sikhs in Delhi in 1984. The Story of the Sikhs is produced by Almask Media. Our theme music is a rendition of a traditional Sikh hymn by the late Bai Avtar Singh, one of the most accomplished practitioners of Sikh sacred music in modern times. We are grateful to his son and heir to his musical legacy, Bai Kultar Singh, for his support. Other musical contributors to this episode are vocalist Gunit Kar and mandolinist Gagandeep Singh. The Story of the Sikhs is sponsored by the Chardli Kala Foundation, a nonprofit that helps young Sikhs in the diaspora understand the values of their faith. Serial entrepreneur Dr. Ratinder Paul Singh Ahuja and the Sawney Family Foundation. If you enjoyed this podcast, there are two things you can do to help us reach more listeners. Please subscribe to the podcast and be sure to write a short review. In the next episode, we will travel to distant lands with Nanak as he roams the world, spreading his message of social justice, equality, and peace, and laying the foundation of a new faith. I'm Erica Wong, co-producer and audio engineer. Lucy Suchek is our research assistant, and we would like to thank you for joining us. Thank you.